If it's Friday, forget that the calendar says it's March of 2023. The presidential race is heating up like it's already 2024. As Republican White House hopefuls descend on Iowa, Washington, California, and Florida, President Biden tacks to the middle on the key campaign issue of crime. Plus, Walgreens doesn't wait. The nation's second largest pharmacy chain announces they will not sell abortion pills in some states, even where abortion is legal, as a federal judge weighs a potential nationwide ban on a key medication abortion drug. And the White House shifts its cybersecurity strategy, warning that China has become the broadest threat to the U.S. My interview with one of the country's top officials in charge of the cybersecurity ahead. Happy Friday. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Chuck Todd reporting in Washington. So objects in your calendar may be closer than they appear. We're still a year away from presidential primary ballots being cast. But boy, do we already have a full slate of campaign travel, posturing on hot button issues and even a fair share of candidate on candidate attacks. And we're in March before the election year. Let's start with President Biden. You have to think that 2024 was on his mind yesterday when he told Chuck Schumer and Senate Democrats he would not veto a Republican-sponsored bill to nullify a D.C. law that came under fire for reducing some criminal penalties. Republicans pushed to nullify the law, hoping to hammer the president and Democrats as soft on crime if he vetoed it. But Biden's move appears to have irked local lawmakers, advocates of D.C. home rule, progressives, and a good number of the 173 House Democrats who stuck their necks out by opposing this Republican bill many of whom now probably would like to have voted for the bill. But Biden's action is the political move you'd expect from a candidate who's trying to build up his general election bona fides on the issue of crime, since Republicans are going to try to wield it as a campaign cudgel against him. As for how Republicans are getting an early start in 2024, just follow the jet fumes. Former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis now both have trips to Iowa planned this month. And while DeSantis is not yet an announced candidate, Trump is already treating him like his main rival. Axios reports that Trump plans to launch a five-front attack, if you will, to bruise the Florida governor, perhaps to scare him from making a run. I think you're going to hear a lot from Trump tomorrow at CPAC. DeSantis will also be in Orange County, California, and in Texas this weekend, raising money and meeting top Republicans on his Don't Call It a Campaign book tour. He will also be at the Club for Growth retreat. That's happening in his own state of Florida, alongside other Republican presidential hopefuls, including... Former Vice President Mike Pence, New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, and Nikki Haley, who announced her candidacy last month. Haley, alongside former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who's another Republican who's put himself in the 2024 mix, and Trump are all speaking at the annual CPAC gathering down the Potomac here in Maryland. Trump speaks tomorrow, but we already heard from Haley and Pompeo this afternoon, hitting themes you'd expect to hear in a Republican presidential primary. Take a listen. Wokeness is a virus more dangerous than any pandemic hands down. I have traveled the world and back, and I've seen what's out there. America isn't perfect, but the principles at the heart of America are perfect. We've lost confidence that we are right. It's not just a, a crisis of confidence, it's one of character as well. We need to get everyone who understands America and our Judeo-Christian founding back in this movement in the same way we know can be done. 
By the way, Haley was greeted with some Trump hecklers during her speech, sort of reinforcing the decision by a whole bunch of other Republicans to skip this CPAC event this year, since it feels more like a Trump rally. Folks, you may not want to treat 2023 like an election year, but the candidates already are. So let's dig in. Vaughn Hilliard is live from CPAC in Maryland. Ali Rafa is at the White House for us. Vaughn, let me start with you. And I want to start with that Nikki Haley moment, um, because it seems as if what she faced at the end of her speech was a reminder why Mike Pence isn't there, why Ron DeSantis decided not to go, why Chris Sununu probably didn't go. This is a, I'm curious if your take is this, but this looks like this is a Trump campaign event that just happens to be run by CPAC. Right. This could easily be 2019, 2017 CPAC. I mean, every single person that we talked to here was a supporter of Donald Trump and his 2024 bid. I did talk to one younger woman who said that she'd be open to hearing others, but this is decidedly and markedly a Donald Trump crowd. And unlike Mike Pence and Ron DeSantis, others who avoided the scene, Nikki Haley, she is the only other major candidate taking down Donald Trump, and she took on this crowd. And to note, she was met with a friendly reception, but far from enthusiastic and not markedly cold, though. And then when she went out in the hall, though, that's the moment that you're talking about. There were cameras all around her people. Uh, they were trying to take selfies with her, but there were quite a few hecklers who were chanting Trump. I asked her multiple times how she was going to try to win over these Trump loyalists, and she did not take any questions from me or any other reporters. And when she was actually on stage, she never mentioned Donald Trump. She did make a veiled reference to that voters should turn to a new generation of American leaders, but... You know, it's hard not to go back to the likes of yeah. 2015, 2016, Chuck, when Ben Carson avoided uh, going after right. Donald Trump. And it wasn't until May 3rd of 2016, the day Ted Cruz dropped out, in which he really went toe-to-toe -to -toe with Donald Trump. At that point, though, it was too late. And Nikki Haley, at least at this point, we are 11 months out from the Iowa caucus, but she has made a choice and a decision to yeah. really not take him on, and especially at a crowd of that uh, obviously are very still much aligned with the former president. And I was just going to say, the speaker's slate, other than Nikki Haley, really is a slate of sort of more of the Trump wing of the party. There's no Mitch McConnell or Kevin McCarthy, but there's Lone Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates. What did you hear from them today? And if we may, the featured speaker at the Ronald Reagan dinner tonight is Carrie Lake, who, of course, is still contesting her loss for governor in Arizona back in November here. Uh, but Marjorie Taylor Greene, I did have the chance to catch up with here, and I even asked her uh, whether she had talked with Donald Trump about the idea of being his VP, as we at NBC News have reported she is interested in, and she said she would keep that conversation with Donald Trump off the record here. But this is very much a, a list of a lineup here that are very loyal to uh, Donald Trump here. And the question is, uh, at what point do some of those grassroots Republican voters, right. uh, do they begin to step away? But in the meanwhile, his allies, they're not stepping away from him. And I frankly haven't seen a groundswell of support from South Carolina to Iowa to here to suggest that the voting base of activists have stepped away from Donald Trump either, Chuck. That's the thing. Everybody thinks that everything's passed Donald Trump by except some of the voters, um, which is sort of the uh, right. Why Elections Matter. Vaughn Hilliard at CPAC Forest. Vaughn, thank you. We move over to the White House beat. Ali Rafa is there. All right. It's day two. The city that President Biden resides in for every business day of the week. He's going to end up supporting the nullification of a law in Washington for the first time in 30 years. Any regrets in the White House today? 
what kind of blowback, how are they handling the blowback that they're getting, both from progressives and from moderates, for different reasons. Yeah, Chuck. Well, the White House is sort of downplaying the reaction to this. This was a, a very heavy topic in the press briefing uh, with a press secretary, Corinne Jean-Pierre, today being asked several times about this. And she downplayed the reaction. She said uh, that the White House had notified House Democrats who are essentially saying uh, and calling uh, President Biden a hypocrite, saying they were caught off guard and wish they had known how he was going uh, to uh, react to this. The White House is saying that uh, they did tell House Democrats at their retreat in Baltimore earlier this week how President Biden would talk about this. Essentially, Karine Jean-Pierre uh, saying that while the president still supports D.C. statehood, she says vetoing this bill will not help make D.C. a state. She says, quote, the way that we see it is that this is coming to the president's desk. This is not a legislation that he put forward. D.C. is not yet a state, even though he supports D.C. statehood, and he had to make a decision. But like I said, House Democrats not very happy about this because mm -hmm. uh, they say they wish they had known how President right. Biden would take this issue before they had voted on it. Uh, and then you have Senate uh, Democrats who are sort of using this as cover. I'm talking about uh, yep. what was very obvious yesterday with uh, Democratic Pennsylvania Senator Bob Casey immediately after this announcement by the president saying that he would side with Republicans right. and go ahead uh, and support this bill yesterday. So very different reactions from House Democrats and Senate Democrats in reaction to this announcement, Chuck. Allie, before I let you go, I know we got an update uh, from the president's physical at Walter Reed, where apparently they removed a lesion and they got some update about that lesion. What can you tell us? Yeah, this was sort of uh, the last missing puzzle, missing piece of the puzzle, rather, to President Biden's physical that he had done last month. We just, uh, in the last few minutes, received a letter from his, do uh, his doctor, Dr. Kevin O'Connor, uh, who followed up on that lesion we know that was removed uh, from his chest, and it was biopsied. Uh, his doctor saying uh, that, uh, that uh, the results were as expected. It showed a, quote, basal cell carcinoma. Uh, he added that all cancerous tissue was successful fully removed, saying that no further treatment is needed, but the president will continue okay. to be monitored uh, for any further skin lesions that need uh, monitoring uh, up until this point, Chuck. Yeah, folks that are fair skin know that routine, sadly, all too well sometimes. Anyway, Ali Rafa at the White House. Ali, thank you very much. So joining me now for more on what President Biden uh, decided to do on the D.C. crime bill is the district's mayor, Mariel Bowser. Mayor Bowser, really appreciate you giving me a few minutes here. Good to see you. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you. Um, let me start with um, when did President Biden tell you that he was uh, not going to veto this bill? Oh, we learned um, from reports that he would not um, be that he would sign the bill. I, I mean, I think that is what has been reported. If um, the Senate uh, went with the with the Republican uh, disapproval resolution, if he had called you before making that decision, what would you have what would you have said to him? How would you have made your case to him on what to do? Um, I think we would have wanted to let the senators make their votes. Um, and we recognize that it was a, a tough vote. The president had issued a pretty um, 
direct and very supportive statement of administration about D.C. autonomy. Uh, and we wholeheartedly agree. President Biden has been a vocal supporter of D.C. home rule and statehood uh, for Washington. Um, now, our position now, I, I think it's clear. I'm not a supporter of what the D.C. Council right. did with the bill. I made uh, that very clear in the legislative process uh, and I vetoed the bill. Uh, unfortunately, we live with the indignity of limited home rule in this in the District of Columbia, where taxpaying Americans uh, were in the shadow of the Capitol, but we don't have two senators, we don't have a vote. Uh, and we've been working for decades uh, to change that. And until we become a state, uh, we live with this process. And this process includes the duly elected officials here in the district, uh, yeah. 13 council members and myself, but it also includes the Congress uh, and the president. And that's exactly uh, what needs to change. I've called on our council um, to change the bill locally um, so that it's a bill that both updates our criminal code, uh, but also keeps the district safer. Is there, um, look, the uh, the council put out, the, the council's not happy, obviously. Uh, I'm curious, what do you make of the disconnect between you and the council on this issue? I mean, I was surprised, I wasn't surprised your veto was overridden. I guess I was surprised it was overridden 12 to 1. This feels like, you guys see this, this issue completely differently. Well, I don't think you should be too surprised. Um, this debate uh, is playing out in cities and towns across mm -hmm. America, uh, especially in the face of, of rising crime. Uh, I have been uh, on the side of making sure that we have a fair system, um, but also a system that holds up. Uh, people accountable who've committed crime. Uh, I have been in favor of a system where we fund the right number of police, um, that we have public safety officers in our schools. Uh, and there is a, a pretty significant philosophical debate about that. Uh, but I think, you know, Chuck, Chuck you're in our region. Mm -hmm. uh, and I just went through an election process. Uh, I was elected uh, to lead the city, to tell D.C. residents what we need. And I regard are my number one priority uh, is keeping us safe. So now what we have to focus on is what's next. Right. Um, if this vote um, goes uh, with the Senate Republicans or the House Republicans, uh, we still have a job to do here. And my intent is to work with our council on legislation uh, that addresses some yeah. of the things that I think uh, has have made policing and safety more difficult in the city in recent years. Look, and, and look, you want another chance to do this. That's why you vetoed the bill. They didn't want to have to negotiate. Now Congress is essentially putting putting this back in your lap to have a negotiation. I'm curious. You don't like how this was done. Does the ends justify the means here or not? I will never say that we want the Congress meddling in the affairs of the District of Columbia. Uh, that's a, a slippery slope, again, that we endure, um, not with just bills like this. Override hasn't happened in 30 years, um, but we have had other interference right. like riders 
on on our budget bills. Like, for example, we can't uh, use local dollars to support women seeking reproductive health care. We can't tax and regulate marijuana because of a rider that literally one uh, Republican from Maryland put on our bills. So we have a lot of issues uh, to overcome with limited home rule. And I won't even get started on the executive actions that we need, like having control of our own National Guard. Uh, So the answer, the bottom line to this. And and you've heard me say it ad nauseum. We have to deal uh, Mm -hmm. with the problem of 700,000 people in the nation's capital uh, not being represented in the Senate and having full autonomy. No, it's that that part of it is just the the more time. I wish more Americans would spend some time here and understand that. uh, And they might be as outraged as you get uh, about this. Let me ask you about dealing with crime. You want to have 4,000 police officers. There's fewer than 3,400 now, which is actually fewer than there were in 2018. How hard is it to find qualified new police officers? Well, we are overcoming a year uh, where we were defunded uh, and we weren't able to hire for a year. Uh, And we're also in an environment where we're competing with jurisdictions across America. And that's I'm glad you asked me that question, because I think that is part of the public safety policy work that I want to do with our council in the months to come. Uh, we want to, we know what it takes uh, to have a, a the police department that the community trusts uh, and a police department that works with the community. That's how you have uh, a, a safe, uh, a safe city. Um, and what do you think president Biden could do about getting people back into downtown Washington? A lot. Um, and this is uh, we have a, a lot of issues. We have a, a special relationship with the federal government. We're proud to host the federal government. Uh, but I've asked the president and you recall um, from his last State of the Union, not this year's, but the last State of the Union, he declared um, to everybody, to employers and to workers, it is safe to go back to work, go back to your downtowns. We know the federal government is about to roll off of the um, public health emergency yep. as well. I think another impediment um, to work. Uh, and what we want to see is a more centralized policy, Chuck. What we see in Washington uh, is every agency kind of has its is doing its own thing. Uh, and I think yep. the result is in some agencies, they are 100% telework. Um, some workers are coming in one day a week. Uh, and as a result, you don't have a vibrant downtown. Uh, and we know that the, the downtown and the capital of the free world should be vibrant and bustling. Right. People come to work in Washington to change the world. And, we want to see them um, doing exactly that. It has real life consequences mm-hmm. uh, for cities um, when we don't have our workers. Yep. And I just hope that we don't see that have an effect on our investments in public education and public safety. Uh, it, uh, and great it all goes hand in hand. The crime it rate, the education hand. rate, the, all of it. It all goes hand in hand. Fill up yes. the downtowns. And uh, and I promise you, the crime rate probably actually goes down. Anyway, Meryl Bowser, uh, mayor of D.C., appreciate you spending a few minutes with me. Thank you. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you. you. Bye. Still to come, two parties with two giant political problems. How Democrats are trying to confront theirs on the issue of crime. Our Republicans seem to be ignoring their big one on the issue of abortion. And later, the Biden administration's new plan to protect the U.S. from cyber attacks on critical infrastructure as it warns of a growing threat from China's, quote, digital authoritarianism. We're going to talk to a top White House cybersecurity official. You watch it. Meet the press now.
primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today. Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. As I mentioned, the two major parties have two major political problems right now. For the Democrats, it's the issue of crime. Big city mayors continue to confront rising crime rates, a lingering economic hangover from COVID, and attacks from Republicans stemming from the 2020 defund the police movement. For Republicans, their big problem is the issue of abortion. They've struggled to articulate what exactly their position is ever since the Dobbs decision was handed down last summer. But I would argue the difference between the two parties right now is Democrats appear to be attempting to work to address their crime problem, while Republicans seem to be ignoring their issue on abortion. I'm joined now by a terrific panel for this discussion, NBC News senior political editor Mark Murray, Simone Sanders Townsend, the former senior advisor to Vice President Harris, host of Simone on MSNBC, and Republican strategist Matt Gorman. All right, Mark, that's the thesis. Uh, um, I guess you can't disagree with me. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yes, only, only yeah, a few I, times. I, I, I tease. I tease. <laughs> um, am I being too harsh on the Republican side? Have they? Are there attempts to address it? So, Chuck, it's a whole lot easier when your party actually, you're president of the United States, and you can actually dictate what your party wants to do. And right now, we're seeing a Republican party that, even if Donald Trump still is out there, they are kind of a lot more. They're rudderless compared to the Democratic Party. And so on particular policy issues, President Biden can say, I want my party to do X, Y, and Z. I want my party to start first in South Carolina instead of Iowa or New Hampshire. That gets done. Mm -hmm. And so we are seeing, at least on policing and crime, I think the president ended up setting out where he thinks his party should be on this issue. But what I'm most interested in is, like, where's the follow-up? Is it just this one off thing? Is it maybe another event where you have cops behind you? Or does this become something we're going to see regularly to really inoculate not only himself, but the rest of the party from all the defund the police attacks? Samal, let me start with the Democratic side. How do you think the president handled this issue? And I, I know you you certainly had, know your you know the ins and outs of D.C. politics as well. <laughs> yeah. I'm curious how you think he's balanced this and what you made of Mario Bowser's remarks. Uh, so, look, on President Biden's side, I think that he himself, it was it was no shock to me that this is where he landed because of who he is. You have to go all the way back to, like, 1994 and before when uh, the, the bill that everyone was called the crime bill, again— Police unions helped President, helped help then Senator Biden, along with then President Clinton, uh, author that bill that did a number of things that Joe Biden would say that his vision of policing in America had never fully been realized. Mm-hmm. And he was never for defund the police. He's like, I want to fund the police, which doesn't, you know, really square well with some folks within uh, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party. I think the staff at the White House should have definitely called the stakeholders. It doesn't make sense to me why there was no communication. Mm-hmm. You knew where Joe Biden was going to be. This ain't a surprise. Uh, from Mayor Bowser's 
perspective, I think it is. I, I, I'm so glad you had her on, Chuck. I think it's very interesting where she's at. You know, she didn't come out and say, you know, this is a thumb in the nose for statehood. No, she's she, not. No, no that's she's not, not where she is. Biden. No, yeah. not at all. But she's just like, look, we could have addressed this. We should have been allowed to address it locally. We don't ever want Congress to interfere. But this is where the conversation needs to go. And I, I think she is like most mayors, mm-hmm. stuck between a rock and a hard place. Matt, the reason I compare the two, because as, as Mark pointed out, Biden could sort of paper over the divide in his party right now by doing what he did, or at least he's trying to. We'll see what Chicago teaches us. There isn't an, an, a person that can do that on the abortion issue on their, our side. I, I, well, I think a couple things. I think the, the problem, though, Biden might inoculate himself, but there is a host of House Democrats. A lot of them are in marginal no seats, which are now left to have to dry. And I'm glad Perry, Patty Murray's getting her political cover, but like, it's a hand-wrapped gift to the NRCC. I think one thing that you, you think, think— By the way, let me pause there. Yeah. You think all those Democrats— who are the ones really angry at the president right now because they think, oh, if I knew you were going to, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I voted right. like, you, you think this will be a star in some of these. Oh, it, 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 okay. it should be. And it will be. And I think, look, I've been on the other side of that. I've mm-hmm. been when I was at the NRCC mm-hmm. when President Trump would do something and we like, we just walked the plank for you. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Like, I get that. It's not a fun position to be in. And it's hard now because the arguments are, are tougher to make. You're not making home rule arguments mm-hmm. in Utica, New York. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, when it comes to uh, abortion, look, I think one thing at least the Republicans have gotten somewhat used to is, and we've talked about this a lot last year, whatever might you think of it, they are willing and more comfortable to go and say, at least as a rebuttal to Democrats, be, look, you are for abortion on demand, mm-hmm. abortion for this, that, the other. It's harder to do that and go on offense on this sort of bill for the Democrats when it comes to crime. Yeah, I, I do think on the abortion piece, though, I mean, before we were having such a theoretical conversation, right? Like Democrats would say, oh, they want to jail women. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and Republicans are like, that is hyperbole. But now you've got in South Carolina, the woman who's being charged for taking an abortion pill and she's being charged with a a crime. Like she's, she's going to court. She's on trial. You've got these Republican attorney generals, um, sending letters to Walgreens, CVS and Rite Aid yeah. saying, Hey, you shouldn't be carrying the abortion pill. And Walgreens is like, okay, it, it is, it, it's jarring and right. it, it seems to the extreme and it's not where the conversation I think used to be for people. It, it's become a lot more real and just concerning. Speaking of what became a lot more real, the Republican presidential primary is going to get a lot more real this weekend, I think. <laughs> I mean, I don't. Th- I mean, I, I'm pretty convinced, and we don't have any reporting to back it up. But the second Trump found out DeSantis was going to Iowa, mm. oh, now I'm going to get to Iowa. Um, he's going to engage. I guess the question is, is DeSantis starting going to engage? Yeah, Chuck, we haven't hit the regular season of like the baseball season. If this were Major League Baseball, yeah. but the exhibition games are starting to play right yeah. now, and, and, the, and the real players are playing. Right, yeah. and so you know, it's not lost on me that yes, we have a huge cattle call that's right here outside of Washington D.C. at the National Harbor at CPAC. It's you a smaller club. cattle call this well, time. The bigger cattle call is down in Florida. Yeah, this you day. end up having the club for growth. Yeah. Uh, you end up having a situation. So next week, you're going to have Nikki Haley and I. Iowa, Ron DeSantis, and then Donald Trump right after that. And so, yeah, things are still getting serious. But taking a step back, this is still the early yeah. stage. You know, if there are some punches, it's going to be a yeah. slight jab. This is actually the time I, where you start building staff and raising money more than winning a presidential nomination. I agree with you about everybody except Donald Trump, Matt. I don't think he is looking at it going to be gentle. I no. think he is going to try to come out hard charging. He's not much of a scalpel. Yeah. Uh, you know, no, but like, I think you're right. Context is important. If you look back where we were in 2016, right? I think it's probably the best comparison. We weren't even close to people, most folks announcing, mm-hmm. let alone, you know, having really 
hard trips to Iowa, consistent ones for quite some time still. Folks are still getting their reps in the weight room. We are in a training camp as opposed to, the, uh, you know, preseason or regular season right now. But you're right. You know, Trump will tend to follow folks and people will tend to, you know, it'll be like soccer a little bit with following the ball. Um, but I get it. I think there will be some sort of, you know, a little bit more uh, attention paid to Iowa if a former president's going there than somebody else. Simone, you have any concerns? This is a the Biden reelect feels as if they've they know how they're going to run against Trump or DeSantis. I do think they think, well, DeSantis is going to be Trump Jr. and that they'll run against that. that what if it's not either one of them? Yes, I think it is way too early for uh, any Democrats to make uh, broad-based assumptions about who the person will be on the other side of the aisle mm-hmm. facing President Biden, who is expected to announce his re-election campaign probably in April. I personally think that Ron DeSantis is a Scott Walker 2024. Remember when everybody was like, ooh, Scott Walker, look at what he did in Wisconsin, taking on the unions, second coming of Republicans. Does anybody remember how Scott Walker fared in 2016? Yeah. DeSantis is untested. He didn't make it to 2016. To okay. That's what I always like to remind saying. people. Jeb Bush did. That's right. <laughs> 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 Give credit. You know, I, I, you know, I joke. I, 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 one time I worked for President so I said I worked in the 91 campaign because <laughs> I didn't really make it to 92. Like, you know, some of these campaigns don't make it to the actual even-numbered year. Um, it, you know, that's the only question I have about the Biden strategy. It's like they do seem to be banking on. Trumpers DeSantis. Yeah, and Chuck, you and I have talked about this too. I actually think that we need to just be absolutely humble about this entire cycle. One, we've seen so many surprises in presidential politics before. But on the other hand, too, you end up having the legal scrutiny uh, in situation that Donald Trump's facing. How does that actually end None up scrambling the Republican right. race? We think that we have a two-person race, but that, that situation could change that as well. And so, and then you are looking at both the health of Joe Biden as well as Donald Trump too. And so I think that we're going to be taking every day by day, week by week, and month by month for what's going to be another long year and a half covering this race. You're better off betting on the unknown than what you think you know. That's for sure. Anyway, Mark, Simone, and Matt, thank you. Happy Friday. Still ahead, new NBC News reporting on the latest limit to what Simone brought this up. The abortion access issue in the U.S. is one giant nationwide pharmacy, Walgreens, has decided to stop selling abortion pills even in states where abortion is legal. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. Women in 20 states will not be able to get a common abortion pill at their local Walgreens. After attorneys general in those Republican-led states warned the pharmacy chain it could face legal consequences for distributing the medication. The drugstore responded to the attorneys general and agreed it would not sell the pill in those states, even in states where abortion remains legal and in several places where it is actually enshrined in that state's constitution. The pill, meant to be used alongside another abortion medication, has long been approved by the FDA to terminate a pregnancy up to 10 weeks. The decision by Walgreens comes as we wait for a ruling by a federal judge in Texas where a lawsuit could end up pulling the pill off the shelves nationwide altogether. Chloe Atkins is uh, our NBC News reporter that's been working on this story for us and reporting on the changing abortion laws across the country and in these state-by-state fights. So I guess that's the question I have is, who got spooked at Walgreens? Is it the government affairs people or their legal counsel? 
Chuck, the top line here is that they are taking an abundance of caution right now. You know, look, they got um, this letter from Walgreens not too long ago from about, or not from Walgreens, from mm -hmm. 20 AGs. The Walgreens received it from them, threatening legal action if they decided to dispense medication abortion from their pharmacies. Um, and they cited the Comstock Act or law um, saying that, look, this, this violates federal statute. Um, and that also, keep in mind, that that uh, flies in the face of what the Biden administration's opinion on the Comstock um, Act saying, hey, look, we can actually, you can mail uh, medication abortion um, to folks throughout the country. But, you know, this is, it's, it's a lot of people are whirling around mm -hmm. with these questions of, you know, how did we get there, especially where um, it's legal and where people in states like Kansas have voted and said, hey, you know, we want, we want right. abortion to be accessible and legal to folks. And so, you know, I think the top line here is that they told me over the phone um, this morning that this is a complex issue and this is an ever evolving and influx legal battle and that they're going to take an abundance of caution right. um, for the time being. And keep in mind, they are... Um, in the midst of applying for certification to dispense medication abortion in all other states that didn't join in on this letter, Chuck. What is this as CVS, the other basically the, the, the largest pharmacy uh, in America? What are what are they doing on this? And is there concern among some abortion rights activists that what Walgreens does, others might follow? There is a lot of concern among abortion rights advocates, and I also spoke to one just before I came on with you who told me that, look, they, um, the AGs, that same group, sent that same letter to um, CVS, Rite Aid, Costco, a whole bunch of people, mm -hmm. like Walmart. And um, we even reached out to those folks last night, and they have yet to confirm whether or not they will follow in the same footsteps. So that is something that we are following very closely um, mm -hmm. in the days to come, because it could really um, you know, shape access for many folks down the line as people, or not people, but these companies apply for certification to dispense these pills throughout the country. Is there any other alternative to this medication that can still um, safely ec uh, help a woman execute an abortion using a medication? Right. So a part of the medication um, abortion regimen that is FDA approval right this moment is the combination of mifepristone and misoprostol. So we have seen mifepristone really become a huge flashpoint, um, you know, in the war over abortion access, especially after the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And it's in that lawsuit. It's at the heart of that Texas lawsuit that you and I have talked about um, many of times. Um, but there is this other medication called misoprostol that is commonly used throughout um, the world when mifepristone and misoprostol together are not made accessible. And misoprostol only regimen is an, also a safe and a less, slightly less effective way to terminate a pregnancy. All right. Chloe Atkins, uh, our expert on all things having to do with abortion access these days here at NBC News. Chloe, thank you for that report. It was an historic day at the White House. President Biden uh, honored a Vietnam War veteran with a Medal of Honor, a ceremony that could have and should have taken place decades ago. The president presented the Medal of Honor to retired Colonel Paris Davis, one of the first black officers to lead a special forces team in combat. Let me tell you about his story. Under enemy fire, uh, with a gunshot wound in his leg, Colonel Davis saved the lives of his troops during an intense battle in 1965. He refused to evacuate until all of his troops had been rescued or recovered, again, while he had a bullet in his leg. Colonel Davis, who's now 83, 
was recommended for the Medal of Honor, the nation's highest military award, nearly 60 years ago. But somehow the recommendation was lost, got resubmitted, then lost again. To many, he was less than an American. And that in the eyes of the law, he was less than a person. And although the men who were with him in that June day immediately nominated Captain Davis to receive the Medal of Honor, somehow the paper, the paperwork was never processed. Not just once, but twice. But you know what Captain Davis said after learning he would finally receive the Medal of Honor? Quote, America was behind me. America was behind me. Welcome back. Uh, amid rising concerns about cyber attacks on U.S. critical infrastructure, the White House released a new national cybersecurity strategy. The report describes China as the most active and most persistent threat to government and private sector networks and says China is the only country with both the capability and intent to reshape the international order. The, cyber, uh, the new cyber strategy shifts responsibility, though, onto tech firms to ensure the security of their systems. Rather than relying on companies to self-report, though, intrusions into their system, the White House plans to increase its own regulatory power on critical, on critical industries and require companies to meet minimum cybersecurity standards. And it also seeks to hold software companies liable for not building better security into their products. Earlier, I spoke with the White House Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technology, who helped put this strategy together, Ann Neuberger. And as you'll hear, our conversation did begin just as the president was taking off in Marine One. So I started by asking her why this new cybersecurity strategy wasn't released with more fanfare. Made cybersecurity a priority since the beginning of his administration. And the strategy is really codifying the ambitious approaches he's taken during this first two years. So in that way, big parts of the strategy are already under implementation. Mm -hmm. For example, improving the cybersecurity of critical infrastructure by setting minimum mandates. You know, just today, EPA rolled out that for the water sector. Mm -hmm. So that may be one reason, but there are also other parts of the strategy that are new um, as well. What, where would you say is our, our vulnerability greatest these days? Is it more in the private sector or is it more in the government infrastructure? The big national vulnerabilities we're very focused on are really vulnerabilities across critical infrastructure. The power, water, and pipeline systems Americans rely on because we believe that between government and private sector owners and operators, we need to give Americans the confidence that those critical services can't be disrupted. And that's why that's really the leading part of this strategy to say we're taking a more directive approach mm -hmm. to putting in place those minimum cybersecurity practices that we've been calling for for any number of years to ensure that these systems are hardened and far harder to attack by either criminals, and we certainly see ransomware right. attacks hitting folks in the pocketbooks, or nation states. And we've seen a number of those attacks this year, whether in Ukraine or Iran's attack against Albania. We've had a, a debate in this country when it comes to cyber about what is an act of war? What does retaliation look like? Um, and, you know, sometimes you want to you don't want to you want to calibrate it compared to the attack on us. So how would you define it? When, when does a cyber attack start entering the realm of an act of war? No, that is, a, as you noted, a really complex area. Typically, it's looked at in terms of impact. Is the impact like a use of force? 
Um, if so, it would be considered an act of war. But that's, as you noted, an active area of law and policy. And really, this strategy is very much focused on ensuring our national cybersecurity is at the level it needs to be to counter the types of malicious cyber activity that we face. So two of our biggest cyber threats are two of our biggest adversaries, the Chinese Communist Party, Russia. And at the same time, those are the two, like we do with nuclear arms, we kind of have to have some rules of the road here. Is that possible in the area of cyber or not? It's very much a part of the work we've been doing in international forums. So the United Nations has a set of global international norms that all those three countries you noted, both we and other countries, have signed up for. And those international norms include things like not attacking countries' critical infrastructure. Those norms are important for the reason you said. They set the rules of the road for what responsible state actors do. And then if attacks occur that go counter to those norms, mm -hmm. we try to build a community of countries to call it out and to put in place consequences to make clear that when those norms are breached, the community of countries comes together. And I'd point to one of the activities like that this year when um, the Iranians conducted a cyber attack against Albania's government. Mm -hmm. You saw the really NATO come together and both attributed and call that out for just that reason, as part of reinforcing those international norms. What, there was a, a hacking of a government institution just recently, U.S. Marshals Service. What more can you tell us about that? And, and was it a foreign actor? So, as you would imagine, an investigation is underway. But I would say any cyber attack that occurs, the first question we ask ourselves is, what was the level of cybersecurity on that network? Were they implementing the kind of practices the president called for in his executive order to put in place, like multi-factor authentication because passwords are dead, mm -hmm. like an alarm system on the network and point detection? Were those practices like encryption of data? So if data is stolen, it can't be decrypted and used for blackmail, yeah. for uh, other things. So that's the first question, because we know that there are a limited set of practices. I just talked about three, we called for five, in the executive order that really make life harder for an attacker. That's the foundational question. And then, of course, we shift to attribution, who is the mm -hmm. attacker, and how do we make, as appropriate, how do we impose costs on that attacker? All right, but I would, I would assume the U.S. Marshal Service wasn't like some private company that hadn't done their two-factor authentication protocols and things like this? Or should we be concerned that we have law enforcement agencies that weren't up to snuff? I'd refer you to the Department of Justice on that because there is an active investigation underway. All right, that's a non-answer. Do, do you feel as are law enforcement agencies following these best practices already or not? So. The president issued an executive order in May of 2021, which laid out very specific practices for all federal mm -hmm. government agencies to follow. Following that, we also made ensured OMB made fiscal investments to give mm -hmm. the resources necessary to implement that. And the White House hosts regular reviews to check in with agencies right. on implementation of those practices. So, all right, I, I'm taking one, adding one and getting two. So. I'm assuming then that this hack of the U.S. Marshal Service had to be pretty sophisticated because the assumption is all of the good protocols were followed. 
like I mentioned, I'm not going to speak to, to specific All incidents, right. but I'm really here to talk about more to the questions you're asking. You know, what's the point of the strategy? And frankly, how do we make our national cybersecurity work? And you're asking the right questions, which mm -hmm. are, we know the practices that should be in place. Right. Are they in place? We've been calling for them in public-private partnerships and information yeah. sharing. We're shifting to say, we're going to use every element we can, notably, mandates through agencies that are right. responsible for security to also now be responsible for implementing those cybersecurity requirements. Are we going to rule out using cyber as an offensive tool or not? So the strategy calls for ensuring that we use all elements of national power to address malicious cyber attacks by both criminals and nation states. And one would consider that as one of those elements within our coordinated approach. All right. Ann Neuberger. Deputy National Security Advisor who focuses on the cyber issue for this country. Uh, and Newberg, thanks for coming on and explaining uh, the updated strategy. Thank you for having me. Still ahead, Reverend Al Sharpton joins me as this weekend, the country marks 58 years since Bloody Sunday. A terrible day that became a major turning point in the civil rights movement. But first, here's Dr. Martin Luther King, who joined me at the press three weeks after Bloody Sunday, in just days after his famous march from Selma to Montgomery. Here he is in March 1965 on why those demonstrations in Alabama had to continue. Take a listen. Now, Dr. King, you had your great demonstration, and Governor Leroy Collins, head of the Community Relations Service, hoped there would be a respite from demonstrations in Alabama in order to give the state an opportunity to solve some of the problems. Do you think there should be a respite in Alabama now? We're here again with the murder of Mrs. Leuzo on... Uh, the eve, uh, the night uh, after the march, uh, I can't see how there can be a respite. Uh, this is a state that continues to deal with human life as it is uh, nothing. We don't believe in demonstrating for demonstration's sake. We don't have demonstration fever, but we do feel that as long as the conditions of injustice and man's inhumanity to man infiltrate that state, it would be necessary to demonstrate in order to bring these issues to the surface and lay them square before the conscience of the nation. Welcome back this weekend. President Biden is going to travel to Selma, Alabama to commemorate the anniversary of Bloody Sunday. It's the first time for him as president. This year marks the 58th anniversary of the violent clash between civil rights activists and white police officers on the infamous now Edmund Pettus Bridge. That day, peaceful demonstrators, led by the late John Lewis, were brutally beaten by law enforcement officers. The video was shown on the national news, and at the time, it helped galvanize support for the civil rights movement, and it eventually would lead to the passage of the Voting Rights Act. The Reverend Al Sharpton is going to be in Selma with the president on Sunday, and he joins me now. And Reverend Sharpton, the importance of this day, to have the president there, um, uh, why is that necessary, and what do you hope he takes away from the march? Well, I think it's necessary and important because we see voting rights uh, under attack in 2023. Many of the things that was gained in the Voting Rights Act was neutralized by a Supreme Court decision and then further uh, neutralized in various states. So I think it is important that we have a real galvanizing of a national call to protect voting rights, and nothing could heighten that attention more than having the president of the United States there. Let's not forget, just year before last, 
we were not able to get the John Lewis voting rights bill through right. the U.S. Senate. So this is an issue that is as relevant today as it was in 1965. I'm curious of your thoughts on what the president did with this Washington, D.C. bill or what he plans to do. And it's a nullification of a, of, of a law in Washington for the first time in 30 years or it's going to lead to. It's, it, I just find all of this very awkward timing, to be honest with you, Reverend. I think it's awkward timing. I would agree with you, Chuck. And I think the politics of it is even more troubling because the local mayor objected to the city council doing it because you're seeing a real uh, uh, a problem, political problem, where you have a lot of cities with black mayors that are having heightened crime uh, uh, statistics. But at the same time, we're dealing with the need to uh, to try and reform criminal justice and uh, and and how we deal with incarceration, and so I think the president and the mayor are trying to deal with the politics of mm -hmm. uh, and the reality of crime, and the uh, those that are so-called progressive are dealing with mm -hmm. the, the need for a long time of reform, and I think we've got caught out there with a bad slogan of right. defund the police when I'd rather use the slogan, define the police, yeah. and rather than try to open the doors of the jails, let's try to have a balanced approach to fight crime and have reform at the same time. You uh, do a terrific job these days of convening, especially when there's some disputes, and you're pretty good at trying to convene, trying to sort of turn the temperature down. Are you concerned you're, you're going to have to play mediator in Chicago? Because I, I, I fear this could be a really nasty campaign. I hope I don't. I'm prepared to do it, but I think it's going to be a very nasty campaign, and I think it's going to be very nasty leading into yeah. uh, the campaigns. Uh, and I would just hope that real uh, people would put the needs of people ahead of and above their own personal ambitions. I, I've always operated your ambitions can be fulfilled if you fight for the greater good. Let's go back to Selma. Um, is it time to change the name of the bridge? And name Absolutely. it in honor of John Lewis? Absolutely. For two reasons. Mm -hmm. One, I remember during the 50th anniversary, I preached at the uh, Brown Chapel, the main church there, and John Lewis was there. And we uh, said from the pulpit, they need to change the name of the bridge because the Edmund Pettus Bridge, Edmund Pettus was a Klansman, was yep. a registered KKK member. So nothing would be more appropriate than to take Edmund Pettus's name down and name it after John Lewis or name it John Lewis Jose Williams uh, because Jose Williams was the mm -hmm. uh, staff member of Dr. King that helped lead it that day. Amelia Boykin, who was tear gas, who just recently died. But John Lewis, I think, should be uh, the name of that bridge. But certainly every time we commemorate and go across that Edmund Pettus bridge, I think of we are marching on the bridge dedicated to a Klansman, even in the 21st century. Yeah, John Lewis would argue against naming. He he never was a. He thought you had people needed to know who that man was in the name of that bridge. But I I feel like that's we're, we're so far away removed. I don't I don't know if that's necessary anymore. But uh, address his take on that. No, I mean that's what I said in the 50th anniversary when I said it from the pulpit. He said to me, "Yeah, and no, they need to know. They need to know." Yeah, I said, "Yeah, but we're in a whole new era now, in a whole new day." where my grandparents knew the Klan, 
but my grandson, I only have one grandkid, that you, you're talking to him like talking to me about the Civil War. We need to uh, be able to tell a different story. That's exactly how my kids are. Why is it named after that man's tale? Like, that's the reaction. <laughs> Reverend right. Sharpton, uh, always appreciate talking with you. Uh, and uh, I look forward to seeing you and the president on Sunday in Selma. Thank you, Chuck. By the way, the Reverend's going to be in Selma for his show, Politics Nation, on this Sunday on MSNBC. And if you spend a time with the president, you know he might have a scoop or two on his show, so don't miss it.